0: Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. On Sunday mornings for the last number of weeks, we're in Ephesians 5 and we've entitled to study the master's plan and what we've done is we've simply uncovered what God has uh, preserved for us in scripture from the apostle Paul on what the master's plan is. And so today we'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. If you have the Bible app, you can follow along there as well. Just go to the menu and go to events and you can find the notes for today's message. When I was in college, between my freshman and sophomore year, it felt like our student handbook doubled in size. Now you know what the student handbook is. This is the handbook that determines your behavior on campus. Your behavior on dorms, uh, your behavior as students, the values that you will hold and what rules and policies that you will obey while a student. And again, from my freshman year to my sophomore year, the handbook itself seemed to double. There was one rule in particular that was written and it said something like this. There would be no filled water balloons allowed in the dormitory or in the chapel or in any other building. Now you know why that rule was written, right? Because at some point in the prior year, I will not admit nor deny that I was a part of it, but at some point in the prior year, this became an issue that water balloons were just prevalent. They were prevalent in the dorms perhaps and on other buildings. And so to help curtail the issue with the previous students, but also to address the issue with future students, it found a resting spot in our student handbook. There would be no filled water balloons, which of course, if you make a rule about something, it fixes it, right? As much as it helped incoming students realize what good, healthy behavior looked like as a student, it also shed light on what might have transpired in the past, right? That rule didn't come out of nowhere. We're gonna look at some texts today that are familiar to us, And as much as it helps guide us today in our relationships, it also helps shed light on what was happening with the Ephesians church. Um, We've talked about the two sections of the book of Ephesians. It's important to keep in mind because as you understand how books of the Bible are written, you understand how to read certain portions of Scripture. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, which is in the second portion of Ephesians. The first portion talks about the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. For three chapters, Paul so beautifully explains Jesus being God. He explains that not only Jesus is God, but Jesus was born and he lived a sinless, perfect life. He lived a sinless, perfect life and was called upon to take upon us, take upon himself the sin of the world. He died and was buried and resurrected and we serve today a risen Savior. So if this is your first time joining us online, perhaps, we believe in the Bible. We believe in God's preserved word, that it is preserved, that it is revealed to us. We also believe in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We believe that he is God. And for first three chapters, Paul does an amazing job declaring the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. And after that, he spends chapters four, five, and six telling us How the gospel should impact every one of our relationships. Today he hits close to home because today we talk about family relationships and our families working, uh, or our relationships working with other people. Our premise through this whole uh, study has been this, that if the gospel doesn't impact your relationships, you are living an incomplete version of the gospel. So to begin, let us begin in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read about a dozen verses to start. Verse 21, Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 21. It should be there in your notes or if you're following along in your Bibles. Verse 21 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Verse 33. However, each of you, however each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul begins with this premise on this section of scripture with this premise. In a Christian home, spirit-filled lives are marked by mutual submission. Look at verse 21 again. It says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. In other words, spirit-filled lives are marked by mutual submission. The reason this had to be called out in the early church in Ephesus is because this was not the norm. This is not what they were used to. This is not how they had relationships. This is not how they had uh, homes. We're talking about a culture that before Christ was worshiping the goddess Diana. We've talked about this a little bit. Diana is considered a, a virgin goddess and a protector of childbirth. She was on the coins as early as the first century B.C., and, and, and they worshiped this goddess. The Ephesian people would submit themselves to all sorts of depravity, uh, including uh, worship, uh, sexual worship and child sacrifice. This was the norm. So I want you to think about a group of people where this was the norm, this was the prevalent form of worship in their society, in their culture, this goddess Diana, and now they've been saved, they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they are now followers of Jesus Christ, and yet they still have this history. They still have all of this that they're carrying from their previous life. So going to a worship gathering for them carried much different connotation in their old life. In their old life, a worship gathering going to the temple and and worshiping Diana was much different than the worship gathering that we would be accustomed to here today. So all of these different parts of their past start to come up as they start to figure out what it's like to worship God now. You know that verse in 2 Corinthians 5, we love to quote it. It says, uh, if anyone is, a new, is in Christ, the, uh, he is a new creature, right? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. We love to quote that scripture because it signalized for us the old nature and the new nature. The problem is we're still the same people. And as soon as we come to Christ... uh, the Spirit indwells us, we become new in that fashion, but how many of you recognize we still have the same habits, right? We still have the same hurts. We still have the same wounds. We still have the same experiences. And so when we come to Christ, all things have become new. Paul is talking about the Spirit that lives inside of us, but there's this war between the New Spirit and the Old Spirit. Part of what the Ephesian church was battling was, how do I reconcile my new spirit with my past? So, because of this reality, Paul is sure to call out that rather than submit yourselves to all sorts of depravity that you would in your old life, your new life in Christ calls you to live a life marked by mutual submission with your spouse. Verse 21 Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, 1, I should say, is for husbands and wives. It's for everyone in the family of God that we are to mutually submit ourselves. When they came to Christ, they had to be introduced to a whole new way of life, new values, new relationships, new behaviors, and contextually speaking, what was important for these Ephesians is that they understood how to submit to, honor, and respect one another. Now before we do a deep dive in Ephesians 5 and the beginning of Ephesians 6, there's two ways that you and I can approach this scripture. I was looking at Matthew 13 this morning and I was reading the parable that Jesus tells about the different kinds of soil and he talks about that there's a different kinds of soil and when seeds get spread out, there's hard soil, hard soil. The seeds can't penetrate the ground, they can't take root. There's a stony soil. These are where the soil might be good, but there's a lot of rock. So as soon as the root goes in, the stones prevent the roots from doing their work, and the plant doesn't do any good. There's thorny soil. So the plant might grow, but then the thorns choke out the plant that would bring life. And then there's good soil. When we read this kind of scripture, we have the opportunity to choose which kind of soil we are we can read this defiantly and defensively and say Paul you don't know what you're talking about or you can read it with an open heart and say Lord what is the area of opportunity you want me to hear from you so let's begin with this premise the Bible is God's word right let me try that again the Bible is God's word right I mean, we can't go any farther than that first part. You can talk. It's all right. So we're going to read this passage of Scripture. We're going to unpack it. And we're going to see. We're going to ask God together, collectively, what's the area of opportunity you want me to hear from you about? Is that fair? All right. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's keep on going. <clears throat> the specific command... For women in Ephesians 5 is to submit to their husbands. You find that in verse 22. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, this was the primary area of opportunity for these women in Paul's day. Uh, If you want some more context, I would read 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is Writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, and uh, Timothy's job is to be the new pastor of this Ephesus church. And he's a young pastor, so Paul gives him his advice. Specifically, contextually speaking, the women in Ephesian church were lording over other people, they were manipulating their relationships, they were using their financial wealth to put down other people within the church. They were dressing in such ways as to manipulate men and to make other women feel less than themselves. And they were manipulating every relationship they had. Now, that's, that's one way for a believer, unbeliever to act. The issue became that when they came to Christ, because that was the only way they knew how to forge relationships, they brought that same behavior, those same ways of working in relationships within the church. It was all they ever knew. So the women would do this same type of behavior. The gospel calls us to something different. Paul asks all of us, and especially women, because of the culture of the day, to practice submission in your relationships with one another. Now, the specific command to men in Ephesians 5 is to what? Yeah, is to love their wives. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, what's interesting is this, as archaeologists and historians study what is now Greece, Turkey, and Israel, they've uncovered homes that existed in the first century. They discovered that these homes gave further insight to the familial structure that Paul is addressing in Ephesians. Most families lived in a single-story home. On top of the flat roof, there was a patio of sorts that was determined to be the the husband's area. This is the original man cave. It was above the home. The first century man cave was on the patio, the roof of the home. That's where the man would relax. He would enjoy solitude. He would be undisturbed. A family that was more affluent, that had two-story homes, the women and children would have their area in the downstairs quarter. The husband's or the man of the house would have the upstairs. I want you to think about the architecture because it's significant because it set the precedent not only in the physical structure of the home, but in the emotional and spiritual structure of the home as well. The husband was physically and literally over the wife. The, fam, the father was over the children. That was the norm for their culture, the culture. They were literally under his feet. Now, with the wife and the children were considered his property along with the livestock and real estate. So when you think contextually about what The Ephesian man would go through when he uh, lived his life, when he became a follower of Jesus Christ, he had to now operate within this new context of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But this is all he ever knew. This is the only way he knew that his house was set up. This is the only way he knew how to operate within his home, that he was the head of everything, that he was above everything, physically, emotionally, every single way. And so, it led to a culture where the husband was domineering, abusive, possessive, where the wife had no authority or identity on their own. I think we can all agree this was not God's intent. So, the primary opportunity for men in Ephesus was this. You need to love your wives. You need to value them as equal partners in your relationship. You need to honor them. You need to hold them up. And here's the the standard that Paul says. The standard in verse 25 is this, just as whom? Yeah, just as Christ. So when we talk about these expectations that Paul writes to, these are not callous expectations that he simply does without thought. The primary opportunity for men in Ephesus was to love their wives as Christ loved the church, not out of duty or obligation or out of law, but because of this deep-rooted love that exists, a love that loves without changing. It's a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It's a love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or the unappealing. It's a love that loves even when it is rejected. It's this agape love. Now let me say this about this portion of Scripture. The commands we look at in Scripture, in Ephesians 5, work when both are in a healthy relationship with God and with one another. And what we typically will try to do is take one of these out of context and subjugate the other to it. So, let me say this. A person in an abusive or manipulative relationship shouldn't submit to their spouse. They should seek help. A person's not obligated to sin if their spouse is asking them to sin. You don't submit in that way. These commands are only at work when both are in a healthy relationship with God. Your relationship with your spouse is only as strong as your relationship with God. Your relationship with your spouse is only as strong as your relationship with God. So when there's tension or disagreement or difference of opinion or personality that take, uh, that each of you has the permission and are empowered to take the posture of submission so that you can act as a unit, as a team, that's what Paul is asking. So to consider our roles in one another's lives as parts of the same team, this is what it looks like. Uh, the Christian must not be thoughtless but to think of others. We're not individualistic. We're not self-assertive. We're not self-seeking. We think of our relationships in tandem. This is why Paul quotes from Genesis when he says this. This is why a man leaves, right? And this is why a woman comes together. Why? So that they can be one flesh. A healthy relationship comes from this understanding that you are now acting in concert we should submit to one another see ourselves no longer in this individualistic way but as a unit now the motive is really interesting the motive is not for a social kindness the motive is not because the law represented that way the motive for this mutual submission is the fear and respect for jesus christ if we respect Jesus, then we submit to one another because we love Jesus. Paul uses the term "fear" in this passage. It's this, this reverence, this awe, this holy fear that embodied us, embodied us, embodies us because we recognize who God is and who we are. This is totally compatible with love. If I really respect someone, I care about pleasing them. I care about Uh, Not disappointing them. And so the principle of this submission is represented many ways in the New Testament. Uh, If you want to write these down, these are very interesting to look up. But there's multiple examples of submission in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus himself submitted to his parents. Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Uh, Demons submitted to the disciples. Luke chapter 10 and verse 17. Citizens should submit to government authority. Even when it's ridiculous. Romans 13.1. The church submit to Jesus. We read that. Servants submit to their masters. We read about that. A Christian submitting to God. So our example for this submission, our example for this love is whom? It's Jesus Christ. It's amazing to me that Paul spends so much time, the first three chapters we talked about, to explain the beauty and the majesty of the gospel And then for every single one of our relationships, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the example for how do we forgive is Jesus. The example for how we love one another is Jesus. The example for how we submit to one another is Jesus. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, here's Jesus the night before the crucifixion. And in that moment, Jesus has a thought And the thought is expressed in his prayer. And he says, Lord, if there's any way that this cup could pass by me. In other words, I know what is about to happen. Is there any other way that salvation could be bought? Is there any other way for redemption to happen? Is there any other way? And he says, but not my will, but thine. This is the prayer of submission. And so our example when uh, we submit to one another is Jesus Christ. So, quick quiz. Husbands, should you submit to your wives? There's a nervous nod all across the sanctuary. Because that command is given before verse 22, gentlemen. We're commanded to submit. Wives, are you asked to submit to your husbands? Another nod, nervous nod. So what I want you to focus on is this. These commands are beneficial if both of you are pursuing a wholehearted relationship with God. Because if you paint a picture of a wholehearted relationship with God, of a husband and wife pursuing God with all their heart, with all their might, they are committed in their finances to pursuing God. They're committed in their parenting to pursue God. They're committed in... Uh, in their hobbies and in the way they spend their discretionary income to pursue God if both are on the same page on pursuing God then the submission does come easier and oftentimes we look at submission as the first part of this recipe to what a gospel family looks like and really it's secondary to us submitting to God first does that make sense And as a husband and wife pursue God first, the opportunity to submit to one another becomes a joy. It becomes a joy because we're fulfilling what God has for us. Spirit-filled lives are marked by mutual submission. Now, a topic like this always comes with, yeah, but. And if you have a yeah, but, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Keep it to your... No, just kidding. <laughs> this is what I would ask you to do. I would talk to your spouse about it. I would pray about it. And then if you need a third party, uh, I would be honored. Pastor Darren would be honored. We have elders and women that would be honored to give you some insight to this. Because there's always these little uh, portions of our life where we need... Is this an area where I, I need someone else's counsel? Part of making a wise decision in your relationships is allowing other wise people to speak into it. So if there's a yeah, but that's in your head right now, jot it down. Talk to your spouse. Talk to myself. We'd be happy to unpack it for you. But the example for submission and love for one another is Jesus Christ. He goes on to different kinds of relationships. And what he asks us to see is that our spirit-filled life will be visible in all of our relationships. Parent-child relationships. Let's go at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 in verse 1. Every parent loves this verse. (laughs) Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Let's all go home. (laughs) Right? Honor your father and mother, verse 2, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth fathers do not exasperate some of your translations might say provoke your children instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the lord now as we talk about parent-child relationships it's really interesting to note that every party is given a command now for the children the command is simple they are to obey this means that children have the responsibility to obey but parents have the responsibility to teach their children what obedience looks like. Um, You never have to teach a child how to disobey. It's fascinating. They pick that up real quick. We had the opportunity to foster uh, two boys for about four or five days. We didn't have to teach them how to disobey once. Because children just naturally know how to do that. But the responsibility for parents is this, to teach them what obedience looks like. To teach them what obedience looks like. Um, it's essential that a parent teach the child obedience so that the child will grow up knowing how to obey God even when he doesn't understand everything or, or uh, everything that's being presented. So one of the reasons why it's so important for parents to teach their children how to obey is this. They will not always understand why they need to obey you. It's important that they understand how to obey though because there will become opportunities in their life where God asks them to do something and they don't understand but the principle of of obedience will be in them because of what you taught them as parents and they will lean on that. So children, their responsibility is is to obey. Uh, Parents, you're not to provoke your children. You're not to exasperate your children. Through an unkind, overcritical attitude that torments the child instead of training them, you are called to raise them up to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So everyone has a responsibility. Uh, look at employer and employee relationships. Verse five. It says this slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Go back to verse five. What's the first word in verse five? Slaves. This is interesting, right? We don't. Um, it's polarizing when Scripture talks about slaves and masters. So, really quick, let me just kind of walk you through how how um, slaves and masters, why they're represented in Scripture this way. Um, in first century Ephesus you could become a slave many different ways if you needed to learn a craft and you wanted to become a craftsman one of the ways you would do that in first century Ephesus is you would go to a master craftsman and you would say I want you to be my teacher I want to be your apprentice so in exchange for your education in exchange for your wisdom I'm gonna to submit to you for the next three years of my life. I'll be your slave. Sometimes it was voluntary slavery. They would enter into an apprenticeship. They would be slaves for a certain amount of time and then they would be released from that when they fulfilled their obligation and they gain the training that was there. There's another scenario when, uh, when families went into debt and they could not pay off debt they would enter into slavery to whoever held the debt for the period of time it took to work off the debt. And then there are the examples that you and I are thinking of when we normally think about slavery. Paul doesn't take special attention to condemn slavery itself in Ephesians 5 because he does that elsewhere in Scripture. But one of the reasons he doesn't do that is because the church of Ephesus was comprised of a lot of different kinds of people from different walks of life that had different elements of slavery. And what he was trying to get them to understand is this. However you entered into slavery, there's a position and a posture you need to have as followers of Jesus Christ. So he by no means approves slavery, but he talks about what it looks like to work within it. So, first of all, when talking about uh, employee and employer relationships, everyone should have a healthy work ethic, he says. Every employee should have a healthy work ethic. There's a phrase in there that says, just as you would obey Christ, you should work. This should change our perspective as workers. It reminds us that our work can be done as if we're working for Jesus, we are in a, uh, we're in a growing situation where we need to teach work again. We need to teach the value of working and what that brings to people's lives. Again, just like in the other one, uh, the other examples, every party is given um, responsibility. Employers have the opportunity and the responsibility to treat their employees well. What's the point of all this? Well, the point is what we began with. If the gospel doesn't impact your relationships, you're living in an incomplete version of the gospel. And so when we're talking about our marriage, when we're talking about parenting, when we're talking about when we go to work, every one of them is influenced through this new paradigm of being followers of Jesus Christ. There's an author called Anthony De Mello, and he tells the story of an eagle and some chickens. A man found an eagle's egg and put it in a nest of a barnyard hen. The eaglet hatched with a brood of chickens and grew up with a group of chickens. All his life, the eagle did what the barnyard chicks did, thinking he was a barnyard chicken. He scratched the earth for worms and insects. He clucked and he cackled. He would thrash his wings and fly a few feet in the air because, after all, he was a chicken too now. Years passed and the eagle grew very old and One day he saw a magnificent bird above him in the cloudless sky. It glided in gracefully, um, majestically over the powerful wind currents and with scarcely a beat of its strong golden wings. And the old eagle, along with his chickens, looked up and said, What in the world is that? And the other chickens said, Well, that's an eagle, the king of the birds. He belongs to the sky. We belong to the earth because we're chickens. So the eagle lived and died a chicken, for that's what he thought he was. Church family, we're called to so much more. And I don't want you for one moment to believe that we are grounded in this life. We don't have to live like we did before Christ And some of us are looking into the sky and we see eagles that are flying and we say, my goodness, what? how does someone live a life like that? How does someone live a life that's so free? How does someone live a life with no shackles? How does someone live a life with no guilt or no shame anymore? And if you're not careful, you're going to convince yourself you're meant for the ground. But we're not. We have been set free. I've been listening to a song this week that says this, I am no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God, and I'm surrounded by the arms of the Father. Church, we have been liberated from our bondage. We're the sons and daughters, so now we get to leave and live and breathe in this newfound freedom. So when we read about these relationships and we talk about what does forgiveness look like, what does grace look like, what does submission look like? What does love look like in all these relationships? God is not trying to ground you in your relationships. He's providing you a way to live in full freedom. That is what this gospel is about. When we talk about the beauty and the majesty of the gospel, the beauty and the majesty of the gospel is this. It unchains you and allows you to live in freedom. Free from pain. Free from the guilt and the shame that comes with our sin. And we get to live in this newfound freedom. That's what the gospel is about. I want to pray for you. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Heavenly Father, as we consider this scripture, far more applicable than normal, far more nuts and bolts, if you will, Lord, I pray that rather than be defensive, rather than be defiant, rather than say, well, that's just an old piece of scripture and I'm not going to take this one to heart. Father, I pray that we would look at what is the greatest area of opportunity you would like us to embrace from this scripture? What's the area of opportunity? Is it in our marriage relationship? Father, I pray for marriages in this room right now. I pray for the ones that I know, the ones that I love, the ones that we get to do life together, the ones that are part of this church family. I pray for marriage relationships where both spouses are working and the chaos that can ensue when both spouses are working and kids are part of the equation and it becomes very, very difficult to carve out time for one another and with you. Father, I pray that today they would determine, you know what? Every single day, we're going to find a time to pray together. And maybe it starts that small where they take a moment and they pray together for that day, whether in the morning or in the evening or during a meal time or on their lunch break on a phone call. They're going to say, we're going to prioritize our relationship with God. Father, I just, I pray for marriages where There's kids that are leaving the house and the empty nest is soon becoming a reality. Kids are graduating and they're going off to school and all of a sudden father and mother are looking at each other and realizing they have way more time, way more space. I pray for them to fall in love with another all over again. That you would breathe new life into that marriage. Father, I pray for marriages where you're retired. and Lord, I pray that the healthy rhythms of the day would begin with all all the space and time that they have attributed to activities and family and traveling, that they would also make a priority to lean into the Holy Spirit. During these golden years, I recognize in our church, Lord, that there are so many who have said goodbye to their spouses. And Father, I would just like to breathe a word of thanksgiving for those marriages that set such a great example for us on what faithfulness and love mercy looks like to one another. Pray you'd bless those, Father, who have had to say goodbye to loved ones over the years. Maybe someone's looking at their parenting relationships today and they said, Lord, this is where I need you because clearly I can't do it on my own. So, Father, I pray for parents. What an amazing, difficult, rewarding joyous hard calling I pray for parents and childs, children I pray that children would grow up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Thank you for the part that the church gets to have in that Lord but Lord I pray that parents would take that responsibility even this morning I love seeing the interaction of parents and children and what it looks like to teach them in every moment I pray that we would have a renewed group of parents to say, we're going to do this together. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Father, I pray for those employer and employee relationships that are trying right now or maybe in a season of transition. I pray for those who are managers and leaders and owners of businesses that they would treat employees well. I pray for those workers that are in our church, Lord, I pray that we would be such an example of what a healthy work ethic looks like. I pray that we would be the kind of people that say, hey, uh, who else goes to your church that needs a job? We, we need more workers like you. I pray that we would be called Lord. I pray that we would realize we're not called to be in the ground, but we're called for so much more. We invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.